Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 28, I interview Oleg Vornik, CEO of Drone Shield, a global defence tech leader in counter drone technology that is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. We discuss how they grew 1,067% last financial year to do 3.5 million in annual revenue, making it one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. How he went from cold calling in a New York City phone booth as a uni student to a three month finance internship and then a decade long career in investment banking. How he became disillusioned with investment banking and wanted something new why he was asked to become CFO and now CEO of Drone Shield, and what it is like to sell cutting-edge defence technology to 100-plus governments and militaries all over the world. If you are an Australian engineer looking for an exciting career in defence technology, check out droneshield.com, that's D-R-O-N-E-S-H-I-E-L-D.com. All right, so I'm here with Oleg Vornik, the Chief Executor, Executive Officer of Drone Shield. Welcome to the podcast, Oleg. Thanks for having me, Derek. That's all right. So can you describe what were you doing before you started Drone Shield? Uh, what did you study? What types of organizations or roles were you doing? Um, thanks. Thanks for asking. So I have a mathematics degree. I was a bit of a nerd growing up and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'm out of university, so I just ended up studying what I what I liked. Um, most people doing a maths degree are kind of a bit like people doing philosophy degree or something similar where you don't really have a strong sense for direction and you kind of just enjoy the ride. And um, then I ended up getting into financial markets uh, through the world of hedge funds and banks and so forth when I left um, Canterbury University in New Zealand. And uh, eventually, probably about, what is it, 10, 15 years later, I found myself a uh, somewhat frustrated investment banker having probably overstayed my welcome where uh, a lot of people who get into banking um, have great 20s and it's a great learning platform. But once you go past a certain level, it's 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 a job that's fitting really for a very particular kind of personality, which wasn't really me. Uh, and post GFC banking was not really the same in any case. So I was looking for something else to do, and and at that point, a uh, New York-based fund which just took a majority stake in Drone Shield called me, and they were looking for the CFO to run with the IPO of the business in in Australia on ASX. So I said, well, that sounds much better than what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, so so I jumped on board and, and uh, about nine months later, the company was listed and we were away and, and growing the business using the proceeds of the of the capital raise uh, so um, I became the CEO uh, probably about six months after the listing as the company continued to grow I moved to the US as if you're in the defense space this is sort of the place to be we have an office in Virginia which is 
I guess you can say, a bit like Hollywood is the global capital of acting, Virginia is the global capital of defense. So when you think of Langley and CIA or a vast array of military bases in the U.S., that's all over there. And of course, it's close proximity to Washington, D.C., where a lot of this kind of stuff like Pentagon are located. Uh, so I did a couple of years there, came back and continued to scale the company, uh, being based here in Sydney with the rest of the team while uh, still maintaining office in the U.S., uh, which which is doing really well at the moment. And in fact, we just announced a, um, uh, a, a new contract with the U.S. Department of Defense today. Yeah, excellent. And congratulations. So, so if we go back to sort of the beginning, so you're at school and you love maths. Was that something right from an early age? Was it just all types of maths? Was it a certain type of maths that really struck your, your interest? Uh, you know, as I look back, I really am not sure where it all started. I think um, I was one of these, uh, um, you know, situations where you have parents who are insistent on or, or they have a vision for what you should be and mm. they kind of push you and they sort of make these suggestions oh well of course you're great in this particular uh subject and um you know after a while if you've been told something enough times you sort of start to believe it yourself so i think this is how it ended up being for me and and matt's uh so matt's comes in applied and in, in pure variety um applied is of course what physicists and engineers do that kind of stuff never really interested me i i like the pure maths more so if you think about things like real analysis you know string theory and so forth um combinatorics um geometry it's it's pretty fascinating so like for example when you do geometry at school one of the basic principles is parallel lines don't intersect and then you go to university and you studied ge uh, geometry there, and there they say, well, of course, parallel lines always intersect. You have one situation on a flat plane where if you draw two parallel lines, they, they want, but in, in most worlds, most realities, you have this garbled ball of a universe, and their parallel lines will always intersect. Uh, so that kind of stuff just really fascinated me. And so you mentioned the influence of your parents there. So your parents were sort of pushing you into maths or were they trying to push you in a different direction? Like you said, more um, uh, physics or engineering or, or where was the sort of the, the friction between what you were genuinely passionate about and maybe what your parents kind of thought was best for you? No, I think when you go back far enough, you don't really remember how things started. But I remember at some point, maybe when I was about maybe 11 or 12, uh, it kind of merged together where I started believing that I, you know, I'm good at something, you know, you mm -hmm. just like little kids think that, oh, well, I'm great at this particular thing or that particular thing. And I guess for me, this was maths and you just continue working and reinforcing your belief. And um, I suspect the seed of it was probably planted by the parents. I wouldn't necessarily call it friction. It was more like a gentle guiding towards uh a particular self-belief um, and then it just continued to grow. Yeah, so more of a sort of virtuous cycle. You're told you're good at it, so you try, then you do well because you try and then you, you get reinforced. Okay. And, and like you said, you're interested in these very, I guess what the average person would say, a very intellectual and abstract sort of concepts, but in another sense, very hard mathematical, um, logical sort of concepts. And, and I mean, when you were studying, were you thinking two steps ahead? Well, maybe I can use this to go into, again, a, a sort of hard mathematical 
um, type role or did you see at that time, you know, obviously Wall Street and, and sort of the finance world hires a lot of quants and you thought there's always a pathway there or were you just loving the process and you thought you'd figure out what to do for, you know, a day job kind of at some point in the future? So I was sort of living one year at a time and what happened between my second and third year at the university is that I decided to go on one of these student exchange programs that most people use to work at a ski resort or maybe in a bar hmm. in the US, um, except I thought, well, why not go to New York City and sort of see, see what it's like. And I, um, I couldn't really land any job before I got there. So I remember I arrived and this was, um, you know, beginning of the summer here, which of course was beginning of winter in New York in, in end of November, early December. And I had enough money to live for about two weeks. So I had to basically <laughs> find a job um, within like a two week time frame before my money for the hostel would run out. Uh, so I, you know, back then I'm sort of showing my age. I'm in my late thirties now. Um, there was no real, um, cell phones or they were extraordinarily expensive. So I remember getting into, um, just public phone really, and just calling, um, all large companies I could think of, um, you know, management consultancies, uh, marketing businesses, um, you know, large brands, um, and so it happened, Citibank, which is, of course, a large banking institution, mm -hmm. ended up um, giving me a job within their private bank, um, you know, effectively like a internship, if you like, although this was probably quite a generous way to call it. I would say it was basically a low-end, menial job, mm -hmm. uh, but it was great. It was uh, an opportunity for me to spend three months in New York and, and uh and at the same time, have that kind of thing on my CV. And then when I came back, I, I thought, well, um, this can be an interesting and challenging career, of course, in a more um, uh, more sophisticated way than what I was doing uh, back during my summer job. Uh, and then when I finished my fourth year of university, again, I, I kind of got to applying for jobs a little bit late in the year, and I, I, I missed most grad programs. Uh, it so happened that a uh, New Zealand-based hedge fund, which there are very few in between of, mm. was looking for a uh, black box developer of trading systems and Matt's degree appealed to them. Uh, so they, they hired me and it was the craziest job for, for a 21-year-old to do. So uh, you basically would write a sort of very quick kind of in and out trade or, or medium to long, long term. Long term in their books was probably 30 days mm -hmm. and then everything in between. Uh, so you write trading algorithms to trade anything from currencies to pork bellies to orange juice futures, um, uh, you know, gold, silver, natural gas, heating oil, th those kind of futures contracts on various exchanges around the world, US, Europe, um, elsewhere, you know, Japan. Um, and then I eventually um, ended up actually doing the trading execution, which was, uh, again, quite an interesting work starting at about eight in the evening when the European markets would open and, and work till about six in the morning. So even to today, I can truly appreciate work that nurses and, and other night workers are mm. doing. It's incredibly difficult and, and, you know, what it does to your body. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so it seems like you had that early interest in finance. Like I don't imagine many people would be in a phone booth in New York cold calling banks. You know, I think a lot of maths people probably would look maybe to a university. Can they get work helping out of the university in a maths department, maybe a school? Were you trading sort of stocks as a team? Were you following the markets? Did you have an economics sort of interest, a market interest? Or was it, again, just New York is finance and you figured that was kind of your best shot to, to get some money? I really tried just about everybody when I was uh, in New York. So New York fascinated me as a city, right? And New York is a capital of many things, you know, of course, finance, but then, um, you know, fashion and, mm-hmm. and just everything in between. Uh, I remember I was calling everybody from Colgate, you know, down mm-hmm. to uh, financial companies. And it just so happened that uh, finance institutions are some of the large employers in, um, you know, in town. So... I think I really just randomly landed into the job and it could have been, you know, anything else. Uh, But I certainly didn't have interest in finance as such. Um, it, it, It was a complete random coincidence. So what was your message to them? You know, I'm from the land down under and I'm here for, I'm here for a couple of weeks and or I'm here for a few months and, Oh, I mean, will you pitch them? I can help with this. I'm good at that. What, or you just wanted to speak to someone in charge of a certain department. I mean, in one sense, like you said, you had a lot of opportunities because you're calling different people. But in another sense, it's sort of, I guess, if you're trying to be something to everyone, you're, you're sort of nothing to anyone. But so how did you, do you remember, because it's 20 plus years ago, what was your sort of message that how would you come in and help? Why would they hire someone off the street they've kind of never heard of who's not even sort of from New York or America? Like what, or, or from maybe university they would sort of recognize. What, what was your, I guess, compelling message to them, which made them give you an internship? was really a scattershot and I, I, you know, looking back, didn't have anything overly appealing. But what was really in my favor is New York always had and it still does have this willingness by people who are there to give you a go if they see you basically, you know, get off your ass and come to the city and take mm. the risk and kind of brave, brave through it. Uh, so, for example, you know, I, I tried reaching out to a few people cold before I came to New York and people would just ignore you because, mm. like you said, you're a random guy with a strange background coming into the city. But I think the moment they see you going out on the limb and, and sort of stretching yourself, the inclination and I guess the cultural, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the cultural um, thing that New York has going and, and states generally, I would say as well, mm. you know, uh, country of immigrants, much like Australia is, is when they see somebody really trying to go for something and leaning into it, uh, they will try their best to help you. So I think that's kind of where they came from. So uh, I remember there was uh, uh, this uh, vice president of operations, this uh, lady in um, in Citibank, and she, I think, looked at my application and she thought, well, this sounds like an interesting story, and she gave me a go. Yes, it's a sort of like the you're 80% of the way there. You're willing to fly to New York. You're, you're already there. You're willing to pick up the phone. You're willing to call. It, it, it's, you know, you've already kind of, I guess, in their mind, got 90% of the way there. So what's another 10% versus someone emailing them from the other side of the world who, even if they offered a job, might not even take it versus you saying, hey, I'll, I'll you know, I'll be there tomorrow morning if you want. I'm already in the city. You know, I'll come by your office, you know, this afternoon. And, and yeah, you're right. I think that, that appreciation, I guess, for the hustle and grind and sort of the dreaming mentality is sort of, I guess, quite different there. in New York, like you said, is sort of the heart of a lot of that over in the US. And so you mentioned, you know, you had a good decade or so in finance. I mean, you enjoyed uh, some of the ups and downs of being an investment banker and, 
um, during some of the boom years, I imagine, of the sort of early 2000s after a bit of a drop. Mm -hmm. um, and then you said you kind of or a lot of people age out of it. Was there something in particular? Is it the, the stress, like you said, the long hours, working night shift? Is it the, the attitudes, the culture? I, I know some people become disillusioned. They feel they're just kind of moving money around and, and not sort of adding value. Was there a particular pain point that stuck out at you why you wanted to, to get more away from the finance investment side of things? I think it's really multifaceted and it's difficult to diagnose a complex issue with a simple answer. But if I would give it a go, I would say, like you said, firstly, post-GFC, things were very different. So my first banking job was with this Dutch bank in New Zealand called ABN AMRO. And the bank doesn't exist here anymore. Um, they're much less than what they used to be European, back to their European roots now. And I remember there being an amazing culture, which was really nothing like I've seen since of, I guess, you being part of something bigger than yourself and, and um, you know, traveling and, uh, you know, growing uh, career-wise rapidly and, and uh, you have this kind of really steep learning curve and the money is great. So you have this, uh, I guess, large incremental enjoyment as you see your income rise from, you know, effectively being a student to making uh, what, you know, to a 25-year-old seems like quite a lot of money. Mm. Uh, so so that's kind of how it started. And then I continued on to Deutsche Bank, which was similarly great experience. And this is also looking sort of pre-GFC. So you have, you know, gigs like you go to Columbia University in New York for a two-month, sorry, two-week program. And, uh, you know, you do these pretty cool courses with university professors and you work on large deals when you're back and, you know, you're learning a lot from the people that you are surrounded by. Um, and I think what happens after a period of time is a few different things. So firstly, your learning curve tends to flatten. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, you just become, as you get into your 30s, less keen to do the kind of hours that are required. So, you know, talking about starting at call it 7, 8 a.m. and finishing well past midnight your um, it's it's not even so much the actual stress of it but you just don't see the point so mm. a lot of it is making sure your pitch books um, you know are on point don't have uh, grammatical errors but at the end of the day you're just presenting concepts to not even necessarily decision makers but to your managing director who then um, presents the concepts to decision makers at your clients who then might just, you know, bin the presentation that you just spent a week of your life presenting <laughs> after, yeah, after a minute discussion. So you kind of lack your why, so to speak. So, um, you know, one thing that I've recently uh, read about is that there is no such thing as burnout as such. It's that, that people do not have the why to match what is being asked of them. And I just sort mm. of lost my why um, I, I wasn't learning uh, the pace was still uh, pretty intense the uh, the money was good but incrementally it was sort of same or less than what I was really used to at the time uh, so I was sort of asking well what's the what's the point in all this so that's sort of what made me look at jobs outside yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point because you see someone like Elon Musk who's obviously a phenomenal hard worker, but because he's got such a big why, he wants to go to Mars, he wants to start a new civilization, plus he's got solar companies and he's got the cars, the Tesla, and he's got such so many whys, you know, enough whys for 100 different people, I suppose. 
Um, you know, he never seems to burn out. You know, he goes through his ups and downs and his challenges, but he never burns out. But you're right, if you're sort of doing work on a pitch deck for a week uh, past midnight and then your, your boss just kind of deletes it or says, I oh, know, cut those slides, you kind of, your why is rapidly uh, gone. There's no sort of big mission to, to justify the, the sacrifice. And so, so I think that's a really good point. And so from what I understand of Drone Shield, it, it's very, um, different to most businesses, you know, a small market cap listing on the ASX, obviously bringing in you as a CFO and then moving you to CEO. Um, you know, that's not what most people, I guess, associate with most sort of, you know, startups, young companies. So can you talk us through mm-hmm. the origin story of Drone Shield and how that, how and why they sort of decide to go through that uh, pathway versus, you know, <laughs> like a, a more, you know, founder driven, you know, client or raise money and, and, and kind of a more common pathway? Uh, sure. So Droneshield was started by two scientists in the US, one ex Johns Hopkins University and one ex DARPA, which is basically a applied institution coming up with a lot of really interesting technologies or defense concepts. And they had this vision that drones were going to create a lot of threat, which seems kind of obvious now, but back you know, six, seven years ago, this was actually quite a revelation as people were saying, well, this is, uh, you know, this is a toy. Uh, How can it be anything threatening? It's sort of like saying today, a flower pot is going to be used by (laughs) terrorists. We'd say, but but why, how? Uh, So they started this business. It was originally a very different technology using acoustics. So highly sensitive microphones with proprietary software to detect the sound of the props and the engines of the drones Mm -hmm. and they had initial success protecting boston marathon against terrorist threats through drones Mm -hmm. and there was a a wall street article written about this and a uh, new york-based fund saw the article and and understood the vision and called them and said guys this is something quite interesting can we make an investment in you and the company was like a tiny unlisted company at the time Mm -hmm. and uh and and grow the company that way and and uh i think when they called first or second time, the guys just missed the call and didn't listen to their voicemail. So the whole thing almost didn't happen. <laughs> uh, and then, so thankfully, the uh, the fund was persistent. And they called the third time, finally managed to catch one of the one of the founders who said, "Well, actually, that sounds great. Let's do this." Um, the two guys were, to their credit, they did not have the. They do not have the level of self-importance that I think a lot of founders do. And they saw themselves as tinkerers, engineers, as opposed to uh, people who lead a business. And they had enough maturity to understand that running a company is very different to coming up with a concept and developing Mm. a product. So one of the things they said to the fund was, well, this is great and we'll look forward to growing the business, but you really need to find us a CEO and CFO because we can't do this. Uh, So this is kind of how it all, how it all started. Um, So when the fund was looking to basically take the business to the next level for, uh, for additional growth. Um, there are really two ways for these kind of businesses to, to get funding. So one is at the time uh, when Australian VC market was even smaller than what it is now, is to go through West Coast VC route. But of course, you need to have connections and experience and, and it's a very, I would say, closed route. You either are a member of the old boys club and you know part of Y Combinator and all those mm-hmm. things or you're not. Um, and 
we were not. Uh, or alternatively, you go through raising money on ASX. So ASX, unlike most other stock exchanges around the world, has extensive heritage in listing small companies and you know you have your mining and biotech and others uh, so uh, there's a long tradition of small companies raising money through listing on the ASX and there's this whole ecosystem of small retail investors supporting that so um, we raised seven million dollars um, on ASX in the middle of 2016 I think we had about 400 shareholders at the time we have about six thousand shareholders now and uh, you know call it probably about 60 70 million odd market cap depending on the day um so we went from there after that yeah no, excellent i think yeah, really fascinating examination like you said of uh, i guess a creative way to work through multiple challenges how to go from you know university researchers to commercialization because obviously a lot of great ideas die in that gap and then how to go from idea with some funding to more funding which again a lot of especially australian companies also die in that gap but using a sort of small cap ASX sort of strategy. So, yeah, very, very interesting. And obviously, it's working. You know, you grew revenue 1,067% last financial year, making one of the fastest growing new companies in Australia. So, so what was, again, you've got some funding, got some capital, but then turning that into sales, revenue, customers, you know, in the defence contracting space, which is a sort of uh, a unique space compared to most, you know, consumer brands or B2B or B2C, it's sort of its own beast, the business to government sort of uh, path. Um, so, so what drove that fast growth and what changed, I guess, good and bad during that rapid growth period? I'd like to think of ourselves like a defense tech company. So people are well familiar with fintechs, so little finance companies disrupting big established banks and other finance players. And defense industry is a little bit like that. It's populated by very large defense companies who are really slow moving and there are particular ways of doing things. And we kind of said, well, maybe it doesn't need to be that way. And again, this was quite an interesting thought well before fintech industry even developed. So we're looking at five years ago. So we said, we don't really brand ourselves as such. We didn't know such word existed, but we became kind of the original uh, defense tech company. Uh, so one of the things that we instituted is you just have to move quickly for example you know every email that lands into your mailbox you respond within 24 hours uh you you work at a high pace and this is i guess where my banking background almost came uh, also came into uh, into help in that you you are very good at setting up a highly efficient uh, machine um, operating at a speed which I guess in banking is applied towards churning out pitch books, but here you applied for something uh, a bit more uh, real life, so to speak. Uh, so, so we um, we hired a bunch of talented engineers. Most of them were not from the defense industry. I mean, we have a bunch of ex-defense guys now. They're mostly in the sales roles rather than in the tech roles. Uh, this is deliberate. The reason why we don't really hire ex-defense engineers is we don't want to retrain people from, I guess, kind of, I don't want to say bad habits, but there are particular cultural mm. um, cultural things which uh, not, not everybody has, but is generally accepted if you are working for a defense behemoth. Um, and we would rather take somebody who has... Uh, great kind of attitude and never been inside of a defense business before and try to teach them how to build defense products. Uh, so so that is, uh, that is, I guess, in part what constituted our growth. You're exactly right. The 
market adoption is slow in the defense industry. So it's not like you can run a MailChimp campaign and you know <laughs> sell uh, sell uh, a lot of gizmos in you know in the next month. Um, defense customers are naturally taking a long time to warm up. I mean, you're talking about selling products that saves save people's lives or mm-hmm. you know people use in a battlefield. So I would say defense and medical technologies are two kind of products that you can't really wing. You you they absolutely have to work, and that's part of the reason also why things are uh, so slow in terms of adoption. But the great thing about defense customers is that they look at it as being your partners. So uh, while consumer relationship is usually very, uh, I would say opportunistic. So, you know, when you go into an Apple store to buy um, an Apple watch, you know, you're not thinking about partnering with Apple. In fact, you probably, you know, couldn't give a damn about Apple so long as the watch works. Mm. Uh, But if you are in the defense space, the customers see themselves as your partners uh, long-term development opportunities where um, it's it's more about saying, okay, so we have a 20 or a 30-year program. So it's not about what products does the company have now, but rather, uh, I mean, of course, the products now need to satisfy the requirement, but also what kind of interesting stuff can we do together as partners in the next 20, 30 years? Now, you multiply that complexity by about 100 countries in which we operate, and you kind of start to get a picture where Yes, there is a lot of overlap. Like, for example, there's probably not that much difference in expectation between, say, UK, Australian, or US Special Forces, although there are particular um, individual requirements. Uh, But I would say, um, you know, military in the Middle East would be quite different to military in France, and the Mm. whole relationship dynamic is entirely different. So we operate three in-country distributors in most places. We have boots on the ground in Australia, of course, US and UK, and everywhere else we we use um, in-country partners who kind of act as our force multiplier because they already have those relationships and trusted you know, to trust the ability to just walk into a procurement office and say, well, hey, here's a new interesting product, you know, would you consider buying it? But even then it takes a while. So the typical cycle can be anything from three months at the very, very earliest to two or three years until the purchase. And basically the more complex the system, the larger the acquisition value, the longer the cycle. But the beauty about it is once you're in, uh, it's a much easier process. So we are seeing situations where, say, first sale, much smaller sale, um, call it $100,000, might mm-hmm. take us two years. And then suddenly you get a half-million-dollar sale two months after because now the customer is comfortable with you. So there's a lot of hard work up front for, very, for relatively little reward. And this is one area where it's somewhat difficult to be an ASX-listed stock because I think people really – struggle a lot of people really struggle to understand that there is that groundwork and um, even if you're only showing few million in revenue as we did last year so about three and a half million we doubled roughly from the year before uh, you should see this more as seeds for much much larger opportunities so not to distant future as opposed to saying well next year is going to be a 20 percent growth year on year but more like these are lots and lots of tiny seeds that we've sown uh, that are going to grow into the trees in the following couple of years. 
Yeah, and I think it's a really great commentary on the difference between some industries where there's very low barriers to entry. So people can build up very quick momentum, but then so can their competitors. So once they have momentum, all the copycats come in and that sort of the whole market gets sort of sucked out. Like often like the fitness industry, a franchise comes up and then a competitor comes and so it's very trend-based. But then in industries like the defense space, because there are high barriers to entry, it's hard to get in. But once you're sort of going, like you said, you know, the, the governments invest for the long term, but, you know, for decades. So you can really be in and you're not always being, I guess, competed away at the edges. It, it's sort of by brand new startups or coming in and kind of being the hot, cool thing. There's sort of an appreciation for stability and long term excellence. And so what was the harder part? Was it getting engineers? Because I imagine as well, a lot of engineers, you know, who may be interested in the defence space aspire to work at these large incumbents you've mentioned, you know, because that's what they look up to and, and that's where they think the best career paths are. Um, so was the harder thing kind of building trust with the government or even getting, again, salespeople who, again, maybe think that they've got a big career working in some of the really um, the big contractors? So was it attracting the talent to work for you? Was it the, or, or sort of building that? trust with those hundreds of sort of governments around the world? Uh, look, not, not, no part of the journey was easy, right? So I would say you have challenges starting from raising money to start with, getting the IPO out of the way was certainly no walk in the park, even though I've done this as a banker a number of times before, uh, getting the right team on board. So yeah, there'll be people who naturally have pretty low risk tolerance who we don't want to have anyway, and they would rather go and work for really large companies. One thing which I never stop reminding people is that even though large companies themselves are safer than small companies, people's jobs at larger companies are no safer than people's jobs at smaller companies. You are just as likely to get fired from a big company than from a small company. So there's no more job security working at IBM than working for a tiny startup, really, uh, these days. Uh, so we found that a lot of people with the right kind of personalities, uh, didn't necessarily want to be part of the big establishment and they like that fast pace and, and really making something. So I guess the difference when you walk into larger places, you fall into an existing structure, you, you have to go with the flow as opposed to being in the environment where you sort of make your own path, right? Mm -hmm. So first, uh, first, bit is probably the hardest where you have to develop a product market fit. So you sort of say, well, what might be of interest to the customer, right? And you kind of try a bit of everything. So you establish relationships with customers to start with, and you uh, just throw a whole bunch of stuff against the wall and see what fits. And, and this was incredibly difficult. So now we're looking maybe five years ago. Uh, now, of course, it's much easier because we've established this fit. We know what customers like. Uh, we are more about refining products uh, and improving it as opposed to actually genuinely trying to establish our place in the world. Uh, getting good sales guys is also really difficult. So naturally, good sales guys are really look up, looked after by their employers. They're happy where they are. And unlike looking for engineers, which is actually a relatively easier process because it's a lot more objective. So you say, okay, I want a guy who writes this programming language or they know this particular software or they've mm -hmm. done this particular experience. Um, you know, every dog thinks they can be the top grossing sales guy because <laughs> there's, no hard, uh, there's no hard requirement what to make one. And, 
And, you know, they'll write on their CV that they've uh, closed $100 million in sales and, you know, try to figure out exactly how the sale was closed, whether it was them or their boss or their colleagues and whatnot. Mm. So incredibly difficult. So hiring good sales guys is really more of an art than, um, than a science, I think. And we had a few false starts on that front as well. Uh, I mean, now we have a really good sales team in the US. And uh, in terms of the rest of of the world, um, we went down the path of having in-country distributors work on a commission basis. And that part is really simple. They don't cost us anything. Uh, They only make money when, when they make sales. So it's a much more efficient process than trying to have your own sales team um, that you know, you you have to figure out are they doing the job or not. Mm, no, I think I think a lot of really good points there. And so, um, stepping back a little bit and looking more broadly at entrepreneurship in Australia, um, you know, I guess you can speak to the defence tech space or the broader tech space, or, or even sort of more generally. You know, what do you think Australian companies are doing well, having you know worked in different parts of the world yourself, and like you said, being part of IPOs and banking and businesses. And, and so, so, what are Australian um, entrepreneurs doing well, and where do you think there's room for improvement? I think Australians have this great culture of just having a go and seeing how how things work out. So, for example, when I was at Deutsche Bank, I was sitting right next to Larry Diamond, who now uh, runs Zip Money, and that's mm. I think a great success story for for Australian startups and there are many other many others like that. Being quite isolated from the rest of the world, I think it focuses you from day one on export as local markets can be quite small as they are in our case. So we actually sold to a number of overseas customers before we started selling to the Australian military, we almost did it in reverse order to what probably makes logical sense. Uh, so all, all of that all of that helps. Um, I mean, being in defense tech, which involves hardware and software, um, we, we do, I guess, lament the culture of app riders. Everybody wants to ride the next top grossing iPhone app uh, <laughs> as opposed to, uh, you know, going about it hard way. And, you know, like we, for example, do antenna design and, and uh, you know, building circuits and that kind of classic STEM where you... Um, you take science and actually build hardware and software as opposed to just write a bit of software. Um, I mean, to us, it's quite attractive, and I think it really builds that uh, capability which just writing software doesn't necessarily do. I mean, software is a big part of us too, mm. uh, but I'd say that kind of combination of um, hardware and software is, is great in terms of the skill set. And we also were lucky in that we fell on timing into when Australian government really decided to build up domestic defence industry and we got a lot of assistance in terms of um, anything from defence shows to access to Australian defence attaches. Uh, So you need to hit the right thematic, right? So I would say when you look at entrepreneurship, uh, I would almost look at two things. Um, One, quality of the people involved and two, are you on point with the theme. So, you know, right now, fintech is a big theme. Defense is a big theme. But there are probably a whole bunch of things which are just not in vogue. And if you're pushing against the stream, trying to do something which is kind of not a um, uh, not a hot area right now, it's much harder. Yeah, it's interesting as well. You mentioned like a lot of people want to develop the cool app that their friends can use and they can make them sort of popular and and stuff. Whereas like a lot of tech actually came out of military sort of research, right? Like the internet 
in the 60s and other things start in the military because they have a lot of great engineers and scientists and the military kind of contracting um, defence sort of space. And then later they become sort of commercial products. But, um, yeah, it's right. That's a, if it doesn't have that sexy kind of cool, here's an app I built, you know, I see how, I guess, in the same way, working for a big, stable company versus a small company, you've got to attract the right type of person who's excited about antennas and technology and drones and, um, you know, sort of these bigger issues rather than just kind of what most people are doing, maybe, you know, like fintech and, and other tech. Um, and, and so do you ever get pushback or, or eyebrows raised being a sort of ASX-listed company with all these other sort of governments? Is it, I mean, obviously Australia is part of the five eyes. They're allied with these other big um departments of defense but i mean does some expect you to be like you know you listed in the u.s is that ever a, a, a sort of a, a comment or again your size is are they encouraging of you know is it i guess the defense in purchasing industry are they encouraging of startups and new ideas as long as the tech is good um or are they kind of like you said sometimes risk averse um in the early stages I think in the nascent technology, it is almost expected that it's going to be delivered by small companies because bigger companies just don't move as fast as small companies do. Being SX listed is actually really helpful because it gives you extra street cred, which being same size and listed company, you just wouldn't have. In terms of being listed in the U.S., so U.S. used to have that kind of penny stock culture. You know, you think of Wolf of Wall Street movie back, <laughs> what is it, in the 70s and 80s when it was okay to be a small company on the, um, on the exchange. That's no longer the case. And it just doesn't work from perspective of, uh, you know, costs, anything from legals. I mean, you know how Americans and, and legals are. You know, <laughs> everything is lawyers, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's... Um, uh, it's just not very friendly towards companies, I would say anything less than half a billion of market cap. Like if mm. you are Atlassian or if you are Zoom, then yes, you know, for all uh, it's worth, go, go for NASDAQ or NY stock exchange uh, valuation or, or IPO. But if you're a small company, um, ASX would be better any day of the week. Yeah, no, no, I guess it makes sense as well. Just the total market cap being a slightly bigger fish in a smaller pond versus, you know, so tiny in comparison to even, you know, some of the multi-billion dollar private companies in Australia, in, in the US, right, before they list. You know, they're just, they're so big, they'll dwarf you. Um, and, and so what does the next five or 10 years look like for Drone Shield? Obviously, you've got interesting tech. You're starting to build up momentum, building that trust with, you know, again, like you said, a somewhat slow-moving, understandably slow-moving industry um, that, that are cautious in long term. So, so what's the future look like in terms of more products, more regions, um, more technology? Well, good question, Derek. We think of ourselves a bit like skunk works of innovative engineering. So mm -hmm. we had no idea where we're going to be um, five years ago, apart from saying, well, generally we're going to be in, in our space of improvised threats. And Nobody knows where drones are going to be in five years or, in fact, where our skill set might take us. Already now, we are speaking with a number of military customers on things which are completely unrelated to drones. So, um, you know, like today, I had a conversation with a large defense customer who said, look, um, you know, we, we have a problem that's more in the electronic warfare space unrelated to drones, and you guys have really interesting skills in the artificial intelligence arena. So can we talk about that? Mm. Um, I mean, I would almost classify ourselves, yeah, like I mentioned, Skunk Works with experience in electronic warfare, 
sense of fusion, artificial intelligence, machine learning, C2, RF sensing, waveform design, and, you know, tomorrow it can be something entirely different. Um, so it's that kind of hard science combining uh, software and hardware looking to solve problems that our customers, which is usually government in some shape or form, mm. uh, have. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we're an SX-listed company. We are judged on a quarterly basis um, with our cash flow reports. So we almost, we're always looking to see where there'll be natural opportunities for us to ingrain ourselves further with our customers, win additional contracts, um, you know, hire smart guys who, and girls who work um, mm -hmm. quickly, come up with really interesting ideas, and you basically outthink and outwork your competition. Yeah, no, it sounds really good. And a lot of people have been talking about the, I guess, re-emergence of advanced manufacturing in Australia, which you know, obviously shrunk down in general manufacturing over the decades. Do you see the defence tech space, what you're doing, what other people in the field are doing, as what could be a part of, a driver of that sort of resurgence in advanced manufacturing? I think our products naturally lend themselves to advanced manufacturing because you're looking at high um pretty costly products, right? Like our cheapest stuff costs you probably say, uh, you know, more than your average Japanese car. <laughs> uh, so you have, you don't have that kind of sensitivity to margins that probably some other industries have, but at the same time, you have high expectation of performance. So uh, you have that combined with anything made in China being quite allergic to. So mm -hmm. 5i customers prefer to have nothing made in china for obvious reasons with the with the current tensions uh so that that makes itself very uh tilted towards that kind of australian manufacturing advanced manufacturing now is it going to be necessarily us now i don't see ourselves as a um manufacturing leader and you know like for example if um once we hopefully have some of the very large contracts that we're working towards do when you're looking at thousands of units do i want to set up a production line stamping these things out no i mean there are existing manufacturers in australia who are much better suited for you know putting screws into devices and doing quality assurance testing and putting it in a nice box and shipping it out uh, but we will certainly do our own share of manufacturing in terms of designing prototypes, taking them to advanced maturity level, and then handing them over to other Australian manufacturers, kind of part of that ecosystem. And of course, part of that design is also working with the Australian supply chain, which is also what Australian government wants us to do, to, uh, to basically have uh, that kind of from ground up uh, manufacturing process. Yeah, so I think a few really interesting points there. Like you said, in the low margin competitive industry like cars, you know, the labor costs in Australia are seen as a downside, but in the, um, you know, high stakes uh, defense uh, manufacturing, you know, the sovereignty of Australia is an upside, you know, versus just sort of looking at the cost. And I think, as you said, even if you're not directly manufacturing, kind of your supply chain is, you know, someone is at the end of the day, mm -hmm. and that helps build up the industry, the talent, the jobs, the people, um, mm -hmm. the ideas, mm -hmm. which is great. All right. Are there any final thoughts or comments you'd like to leave the audience with, or anything I haven't covered you'd like to cover off on? No, look, I think that's been uh, that's been great. So, you know, to recap, uh, I would say anybody who's considering leaving their 
boring, you know, corporate job for a uh, for a startup. I would highly recommend it. I would say, like most things in life, starting earlier, starting younger is easier than starting later and older. Uh, so, you know, your favorite decision, you look at your upside and your downside. And, uh, and I think most of the time when you look at it on that basis, you say, well, why not take the risk and do something interesting with yourself? Excellent words to finish with. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.